Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. A very pleasant good evening and welcome to That's Truth. I am Augustine Erskine with you tonight, sitting in for Brother Nathan, and Pastor Murphy is here as usual to answer your questions and to present our topic for tonight. You know, for the past weeks, we've been discussing the topic decision-making, but they've been diverted to answering questions from our listeners. And tonight we have a few more questions from last week, so we'll be answering those questions and continuing on the topic decision-making. So I do trust that you will remain tuned with us for the entire program. And Pastor Murphy, good evening. Uh, Good evening, Brother Erskine, and good evening to the audience who are listening today. Okay, Pastor Murphy, you've been um, discussing the topic decision-making, but we have a lot of questions here tonight. So... um, we're going to answer some of these questions and then get into the topic on decision-making. Okay, we have a question here from a listener from St. Kitts, Pastor Murphy. You want to deal with this one at this time? Uh, what's the question, please? What are the greater works believers shall do, spoken by Jesus? And that's um, based on the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 12. Yeah, I think last week uh, that question was posed and I asked that I be given a little bit of time to give some more thought to the uh, answer. And uh, I want to just spend a few minutes dealing with the subject. The problem we have when we face a topic like that is, generally speaking, people assume that the greater works has to be some kind of miraculous uh, signs and wonders. And uh, the moment you begin to, to do that, and take that interpretation, run into a historical roadblock. Because let's be very honest, uh, no one after Christ or before Christ has ever been able to perform greater miraculous works than he did. It is true that in the book of Acts, you'll find that the disciples and the apostles performed certain miracles, uh, healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 5, this healing by the very shadow of Peter, there's Paul who smites Elymas with blindness in the book of Acts chapter 15. And then, of course, Ananias and Sapphira was uh, pronounced uh, dead, uh, Acts chapter 5 by, by Peter. Then you've got Paul being bitten by a viper and uh, not suffering any kind of, of death. Uh, but again, what are those miracles to compare with the miracles of Christ? For example, whoever performed the miracle of re- uh, feeding 5,000 people or 3,000 people, Whoever was able to walk on this on the water uh, outside of Christ, um, 
who was able, ever able to turn um, water into wine or raise the dead after four days, uh, who was ever able to speak healing at a distance as Christ did to the centurion uh, child. And then, uh, as the Bible says, uh, there's never been a person to heal somebody who was born blind. Christ did that, whoever stilled the storm. The point I'm making here that as long as you begin to conjecture that the greater works that are talked about are the miraculous, uh, you come to a historical uh, roadblock because we know that that didn't happen. Not that they weren't miracles, but they were not greater than Christ. So you've got to come to a better understanding of what we mean by uh, greater works. I think one of the things that would help us to understand what this meant is that when you look at the life of Christ, uh, his greatest works were not the performing of miracles. His greatest work was a redemptive work. And it was easier for Christ to work with nature and still the storm or deal with um, uh, turning water into wine than to change the human heart, which is totally dependent on man's free choice, yet to bring him to conversion and faith. That's the greatest work that Christ ever performed. Now, when we begin to understand that in the context of these greater works, then we begin to understand that he's perhaps referring to something beyond the mere physical miraculous uh, things that people do and deal more with the redemptive work. Uh, that the church would eventually be engaged in. Remember that Christ's uh, greatest work of redemption was confined strictly to Palestine in terms of his ministry. He never went outside Palestine. Remember also that uh, his, his, his focus was essentially Jewish focus. He even told the disciples not to go to the Gentiles, and he told the 70 to go to, to Israel because Israel was the one that had been promised the Messiah. So really it is more of a... a, a a Jewish focus in terms of his ministry. He spent 33 years uh, on planet Earth ministering. By the time he had left, if we take Acts chapter 1 and verse 15 as a measure of the success, there are only 120 that are assembled there in Acts chapter 1. So after 33 years on planet Earth, 120 actually in the kingdom. If we take Acts, uh, Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, where Paul makes a reference to 500, even so, that is a minuscule amount of people that he was that would that were converted under his ministry, uh, and of course, uh, men like Billy Graham and uh, other Dwell and Moody reach far more people than Christ would have reached. So I'm just saying you've got to look at it from a salvific point of view or redemptive point of view to understand what it's talking about. The other thing is this: during his earthly ministry, he never had the media. Uh, to be able to reach a broader geographical audience than we're in Palestine. I mean, today we've got access to different forms of, of reaching people that he never had. So in that sense, we perform far greater works. And then consider as well, he never built any institutions. He never established any enterprises. There are no physical structures that he left on planet Earth. There are no orphanages or hospitals or social uh, programs that he put in place. There are no mission societies or humanitarian organizations, not even schools or theological seminaries that he started. So... Uh, I think the best way to understand this concept that we will do greater works, I think we have to look at it in the context of the salvific work that he did, which was the greatest work, and how we uh, today um, and, and those that followed him would do a, a greater extent of work. So I think he's talking about their quantity of work. Um, 
the stats, the statistics in terms of people that we reach. Uh, the church and the people that have been world evangelists have reached far more people than Christ has ever reached. I think Billy Graham is supposed to have had over a million converts by the time his ministry was over. What is, I mean, when you compare that with the effect that Christ had when he was in Palestine, you see it's a far greater work. And then in terms of variety as well, uh, there are Christians who have started schools and hospitals and orphanages and churches. There are those who have um, um, offer hunger relief, uh, those who do evangelism that reached uh, globally. There's a whole lot of missions and revivals that people have had, uh, even in terms of in preaching and reaching far more people than Christ did. And of course, the the amount of conversions uh, far excel what he was uh, what he was able to accomplish during his his. That doesn't mean he was a failure because his purpose was to come to provide redemption, of course. And then in terms of effect, in Acts chapter 2, we find that with one sermon, uh, 3,000 come to the Lord. Our Lord spent 33 years, and by the time he's finished, only 120. A few chapters after that, another 5,000 believe as a result of the preaching of the apostles. And then, of course, the global outreach uh, that the disciples had. They traveled all over the world outside of Palestine, reaching uh, others. So I think the, the problem we, we, we have to understand that if we confine this to strictly in the realm of miraculous, there is no historical evidence that anybody ever performed the kind of quality and quantity of miracles that Christ did. Uh, as a matter of fact, when John finishes his chapter, chapter 20, he, he, he gives you a, a hyperbolic summary where he says, uh, if all that Christ did was recorded, not even the whole books in the world could receive them, giving an idea of the vast extent of his ministry that was never included in the... In the in. So it cannot be referring to those things. I think it's talking about the extent of the our ministry, the variety that we would have, the effect we would have, and talking about the quantity of work that we will do. In that sense, uh, greater work was done. And that is what I think is the biblical an, uh, answer. Two other things I think help in this matter at Nerskin. In Matthew chapter 11, it is to be told that there's no man ever born that was greater than John the Baptist. And the reason why, and then it says, but the one in the kingdom of God is greater than John. That gives you the importance of how crucial being in God's kingdom is and how crucial it was to bring people into the kingdom. Here's the greatest man ever born, but yet the man, one man in the, in the kingdom is greater than John. That gives you an idea of the value and the premium that was placed on getting into the kingdom of God. And then in John chapter 10, uh, verse 41, it said that this great man performed not one single miracle. So here's the greatest man that ever lived, never performed one miracle. So if we measure greatness by miracles, uh, you see the problem there. And then the other thing in Corinthians chapter 12, verse 29 and 30, uh, Paul says that the gift of miracles is not given to everybody. It's a special gift. But yet our Lord said it would be a common feature that those who follow him and believe in him would do greater things than he did. So it cannot be referring to the miraculous uh, there. That does not discount that the disciples perform miracles, but we cannot uh, define greatness and greater things in terms of uh, miracles that perform. It has more to do with the, the redemptive work that the church would do in expanding the gospel to the ends of the world in terms of quantity and variety and effect and extent. So if I'm getting you right, Pastor Murphy, the emphasis on greater works is not the quality, but the quantity. Well, it's, it, well, it's, uh, it's hard to define it. When I say quant- it's both quantity and quality in, in the sense that um, 
we know quantity in terms of the, the amount of work that is done, but when you look at as well as the quality, there are things that we do that Christ never did and, and Christians do today. For example, take the ministry of prison reform. Christians are behind that. Take the ministry of reaching the blind and creating a language that people can speak. Christ did not, we did that. So, so it's hard to design that. What I'm saying to you is it, it, we must not limit it to the miraculous. That's what I'm saying. And that's what people think when they think about greater works. They always think about uh, maybe uh, taking up a snake and you, you're not being killed. That's how a lot of people get into these kind of bizarre practices because that's how they conceive it. But when you analyze it very carefully and you look at the miracles that Christ performed, if you're thinking in terms of people, no one has ever performed greater miracles than Christ did. But there are Christians who have done far more work than he did in terms of the extent of it and had far more effects than he had when he was there personally. Uh, and, I, and the other thing, Nurse, that he, he said, because you will do this because I go to my Father. And remember when he went to the Father, he could not go to the Father, and when he got there, the Holy Spirit was sent down. And in Acts chapter 1, we are told what the ministry of the Holy Spirit was, to give the believers power to do what? To begin at Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and carry it to the ends of the world. So it had to do with carrying the gospel to the ends of the world. That is the greater work that, that would be performed uh, by the church. Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. And just like to let our listeners know if you'd like to go live on the air to pose a question to Pastor Murphy, that number to reach us to go live on the air is 268. Four six two seven four two zero, or if you like to send a WhatsApp, it's two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Okay, Pastor Murphy, we have another question here from a listener in Antigua. Facebook question. It said, the verse that says, two shall be gathered, one shall be taken, and the other left. Can I say that this is the rapture? And this is referring to Luke chapter 17, verse 34. Okay. Um, let me give you a, a quick answer, and then I want to walk you through the chapter, and then I want to do a, a parallel passage in the book of Matthew that deals with the same uh, passage, so that you can get a greater context of what, what uh, it's talked about. I would like to say on the outset, this reference has nothing to do with the rapture, absolutely nothing to do with the rapture. Unfortunately, uh, people have used it again and again. Uh, to say, you know, two people be sleeping and one be taken and one left. But that's not what it's teaching. I'll show you very clearly that's not what it's teaching. First of all, let's go to Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 17. And let's start from verse number 24, Brother Erskine. Could you start reading that for me just please? I'll stop you as you go on. Luke 17, where the passage is found. Um, and we'll go from verse number 24 to get the context of the reference that the person made. Luke 17, verse start from verse 24. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. Okay, stop there for just a moment. You notice that he's using here the imagery of lightning uh, coming very quickly. So he's talking about a sudden, swift, visual, um, uh, traumatic experience that people are going to have. And he said, "When who? what happens in verse 24? When the Son of Man, verse 24, 
be. When the Son of Man be in his day. Right, this has to do with the day of the Son of Man when he comes. This is not the rapture. This is the revelation of Christ when he returns at his second coming after the tribulation period. I'll show that very, very clearly to get you to understand. Now, having said that, I give you an idea that Christ is going to come very suddenly, very swiftly, and it's going to be very visual and tra- traumatic, very thunderous, as it were. Uh, and he now begins to compare it with uh, two analogies. He uses the day of Noah and the day of Lot. Can you read verse uh, 26? And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. Okay, continue reading. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And uh, and the flood came and destroyed them all. You notice the emphasis there that there was a separation. One group was saved and reserved. That is Noah and those who were into the ark. The other group was destroyed. So there's a, there's a separation taking place between two groups. One group that was saved and one group that was destroyed. And then it refers also to the days of Lot, if you read that in verse 28 and 29. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot... They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. Okay, notice that again, um, a lot is saved, but Sodom is destroyed. So you're dealing with two groups. One group is saved and one group is destroyed. And then notice in verse uh, 30, he goes back to what day this is going to be. He said it's the day of what? When it's verse, 20, verse 30. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, again, this is what we call the revelation of Christ, not the rapture of Christ. This is when you're going to discover later when I use the parallel passage that it said that every eye will see him and they would wail for him as a, 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 a woman would wail in travail. So this has to do with the revelation when our Lord comes back, the Son of Man, when he reveals himself. The rapture is not when he reveals himself. The rapture is a secret uh, encounter where the believer is snapped snatched away and taken out. But here, he's revealing himself. And, and then notice verse 31. He uh, uses some illustrations. When this happened, he says, there's certain things you shouldn't do. Say, in that day, he which shall be upon the house stop, and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. He's saying that when these events take place, they'll happen so subtly and be so traumatic. You don't have time to salvage whatever belongings you have. Just just escape. Uh, that's what he's saying here in this passage. I'm going to come back to that in Matthew chapter 24 to show you the same references used there. And then verse 32 warns uh, why you don't do this. He said in verse 32, what happened? Remember? Remember Lot's yeah, wife. Yeah, because the problem with Lot's wife, remember Lot's wife was only a uh, judge after the judgment had taken place and she looked back. Okay, so he's warning the, the, the persons when this begins to happen. You don't have time to look back or to go back to get anything, just escape, basically what he's saying. Um, and then notice verse 34, uh, what he says there, when it's going to happen, uh, the, the difference is there. Verse 34 said, I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed. The one shall be taken and the other be left. Go ahead. Read to verse two women verse. shall be grinding together. The one shall be taken and the other left. Uh, next one. Two men shall be in the field. 
The one shall be taken and the other left. Again, he's talking about the same idea of two groups. One is going to be saved and one is going to be destroyed. The same, but he's using illustration here. And notice that he's using uh, both night and day. And, and th- by the way, this is, this is where the Bible was teaching the world was wronged. If the world wasn't wrong, you couldn't, couldn't have night and day at the same time happening. That's why that some parts of the world, when he returned, it'd be night. Some parts, he'd be day. So it's actually showing you that this concept that, uh, that the world is wronged is actually there in that, in that matter. Now, we'll come back to that because these passages and these references are mentioned in Matthew 24. But Matthew 24 gives you far more detail and we'll give you some more specifics of what time this is. Now look at verse 37. They asked uh, asked a question when he told them that. And they answered and said unto him, We are Lord. And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, Tither will the eagles be gathered together. So the disciples, he just told them, you know, one will be taken, one will be left. You want to know where is this going to take place and uh, where are these people going to be uh, taken? That's basically what he wants to know because one will be taken, one left. What's going to happen? And he gives them a rather cryptic answer uh, in terms of how we understand Scripture because we don't understand this idiomatic expression, but the Jews would have understood it. He said, wherever the, the body is, and you, Matthew will explain what that is, is the word is carcass. Wherever the dead body is, that's where the not the word is not eagle in the in, in the in the in the uh, Greek language. The word is vultures. So wherever the dead body is, that's where you'll find the vulture is. And we'll come back to what that means. But it's, the significance here is that wherever these people are taken, there's a dead carnage of bodies, and the dead and the, the vultures are feasting on this matter. So the ones that are taken, the ones that are going to suffer judgment, and it, it, God's judgment. And then I'll show you later in Revelation chapter 19, it, it talks about this same thing when the eagles and the, the vultures will be uh, given to eat the flesh of the those who died during the tribulation period. But this is what uh, I want you to bear in mind. Now go to Matthew chapter 24, um, verse 24 and verse, um, uh, start from maybe verse 21. What does verse 21 say? Okay, let's start at verse 21. Yeah, let's start at... um, Verse 27. We'll come back to verse 21 and verse 29. Let's start at verse 27. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Now stop there. That's the same expression that's used in Luke chapter 17, verse 24. Okay? So he's talking about the same period. He's used the same imagery there. Okay? So we got that. And then uh, read... Um, and also, it's the same reference to the Son of Man in, in Luke chapter 17, 24. Yes. The two of them are connected there. That's the first thing. So we're dealing with the same subject and the same uh, discourse that our Lord had. Go to verse 28. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Same passage, but you notice now he's still using body use carcass. And the word eagle is there in the King James, but the word is, is, um, the word is vulture. So he's using the same illustration that was used in Luke 17, 37, about the, uh, the, the vultures going where these decomposed bodies are, that are snatched away in judgment. Now look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the Son of Man be shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. Okay. So what people are we talking about now? 
throughout the tribulation period. See, go back to verse uh, 21 and, and read that, and you see the passage in, in 27, uh, 20, 24, verse 21. And there shall be. Verse 21 said, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, not even shall be. So what he's talking about here is what will take place during the tribulation period. And he said, directly following the tribulation period, uh, the, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the whole uh, heavenly phenomenon is going to be shaken. That gives you an idea. And by the way, in Joel, the book of Joel, this same imagery, sun, moon, etc., is referring to the day of the Lord, when the Lord comes back to judge the earth. So this day of the Son of Man is the same equivalent of the day of the Lord mentioned in the book of Joel. So we're dealing here with what is called the revelation or the second coming of Christ when he reveals himself and he comes back in his glory. We're not talking about the rapture when the church is snatched away in secret. Go down to um, verse... Pastor Murphy, before you move on, you know, there are a lot of folks... They, they know about the coming, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And they seems not to know the difference between the rapture and the revelation right. of Christ. Well, that's where the confusion comes here. The person is finding if this passage relates to the rapture or the second coming of the revelation. The, the problem is that where people are hearing about, the, you've got these movies that come out, one be taken, one left, and they assume that this has to do, this has not to do with the rapture. And unless you get the context of what, I'll explain to you how he explains that these ones that are be taken, be taken into judgment. The ones that are left are the ones that go back into the millennial kingdom. Just like in the days of Noah, the ark, after they came out of the ark, they went into a new, new world. Just like they have lot, it started a new life afterwards, but those that were snatched away in judgment. So that's why it's important to make a differentiation between, but the context is what helps with interpretation. And if you don't have the context, you'll always have a misinterpretation. So I understand what you're saying. The rapture is when Christ comes for his church and his church is snatched away. And he will not come to earth. No, he's not coming mm-hmm. to earth. He's coming to, well, he's coming for his church, but when the trump is sung, the spirit. believer rise. Mm-hmm. The revelation is when he comes back with his saints. One, he comes for his saints, and then you've got the judgment seat of Christ, and then he comes back with his saints uh, in what is called the second coming uh, with, with the believers. And that's what we call the revelation. That's what we call the revelation. Okay. Now, I'm coming back to, um, go back to verse 30 of chapter 27, uh, 24. Verse 30. 30 said, yeah. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, it's very, very clear. This is a time when the world sees him coming in his glory. And by the way, this same reference is found in Revelation chapter 1, which deals with the tribulation period, when he comes back and they shall finally see and they shall weep with him because they realize they've crucified the Messiah. So this has to do with the Lord's uh, coming back, uh, not for his church at the rapture. This has to do with his coming back during the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation period, uh, to bring about uh, the final judgment and to separate, uh, take those who are left into the kingdom, which you call the elect. Um, and then look at verse 31 after that. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of ch- a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds 
from one end of heaven to the other. Again, it's the same thing we're saying. The, the ones that are left are now gathered because they are now going to be taken into the millennial kingdom because after the, the tribulation period when God judges planet earth and I think by the time I think we did the book of Revelation I think by the time it's finished more than half the world's population is wiped out and uh, those that remain are going to be judged and depending on their treatment of Israel during the tribulation period would either go into the millennial kingdom or not uh, that's another thing that we can talk about now who was he referring to then um, in this passage um, the one taking notice that the, the right, you see angels know that come and take these ones into the kingdom. See, see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where like this, the, these ones are safe now. These that are left now are now taken into the kingdom. The ones that are uh, judged and swept away or taken away are the ones who are taken away in judgment. That's what it's talking about. That's why it's so important to get the context. But let's go on to verse 32 and verse the thir- verse 35. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and put it forth leaves, ye shall know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the door. That's 35. Okay. Go down to 34. said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away but my words shall not pass away. Okay, read verse 35. This one, verse 35 said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Okay, so notice that the generation that uh, witnesses these events, will, that generation will not pass away until all these events uh, are fulfilled. So the generation that is going to witness these things, the beginning of these things, is a generation that will not pass away. Uh, before the, all of these things come to pass. That needs to be very, 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 very clear. If you look at, um, um, go down and read verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Okay, continue reading. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Okay, the same reference that we had in the previous text is now found here again. So you're dealing with the same scenario, the same same scene, the same subject is being discussed in this particular passage. Uh, I want you to continue reading. So they got the analogy now again of Noah. And, uh, and again, it's when the Son of Man, when it happens in the days of the Son of Man. Continue reading. From verse 37. It seems like we have a caller here. Okay, Let's go ahead. Good evening, caller. Not hearing anything. Okay, let's continue. Verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Again, you remember in Luke chapter 17, the same reference to Noah, and the same event is being referred to. Uh, Again, read verse 38 and verse 39. For as in the days that were before... Yes, this is 38. 
For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. Verse 39, And knew not until the flood came and took them all away. That's what it's talking about there. The taken away of these people in judgment during the tribulation period. It's not taken up to heaven in the rapture. That's the point I'm making here. So, the, and, and then you, you'll find that he's going to use the same illustration of people in the same field uh, in, in verse 40, etc. But let's, let's go on. Um, so notice the flood came, nor into the ark. If, uh, he was safe. The flood came and just took them away, okay, in judgment. Now, that is the same thing that is made in Luke chapter 17, verse 26 to 27, that one will be taken and one left. It, one is taken away in judgment. That's what he's referring to. He's not talking about taken away to heaven in the rapture. That's what he's talking Then go on to verse 40. Then shall two be in the field, the one shall be taken and the other left. The other verse 41. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. It is very, very clear uh, in this passage that you're talking about the same incident, the same story, the same context. And what our Lord is here dealing with is some will be taken away in judgment and wrath and the ones left are those that will go into the millennial kingdom. Um, there is a passage there in uh, Matthew chapter 24. Um I'm trying to get the reference here to it, but I'm, I'm not seeing it on my notes uh, here. But it has to do with the fact that he did identify uh, in Matthew 24 where this is going to take place. Um, it has to do with when he says, uh, flee from Judea. I, I don't have the reference here, but let me just see if I can turn to it very quickly. Um, Matthew 24. Yes, uh, look up verse 16. Sorry about that. 16 and 17, the same context, Matthew 24, verse 16. Well, look at verse number 15 first of Matthew chapter 24. Okay, he said, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whosoever readeth, let him understand. Oh, go ahead. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Okay. Let him which is on the house stop not come down to take anything out of his house. And verse 18. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. T two things there. These events that he's talking about here will take place in Judea. And when those events come, because this is the tribulation period God is dealing with Israel, you notice that the same language is used. You know, if you're in the field, don't go back to the house because you don't have time to salvage. If you're in the house, stop, run. Don't, don't go down even to do that. And then he talks about the abomination of desolation that Daniel mentioned in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. If you turn there, you'll see that. It talks about the 77 days, uh, the seven weeks or the seven years of tribulation. We are told that in the midst of the tribulation period, uh, the seven years, the Antichrist is going to break the covenant with Israel and then will begin what is called the abomination of desolation. That's when the, he sets up an image of himself in the temple, claiming that he is God, and Israel will then realize that they were betrayed. And uh, the Bible says, flee. That's the abomination of desolation. That also has a reference to Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Could you look there, please, if you have a uh, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and read from verse number 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come 
a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Okay, continue with it. Who opposed and exalted himself above all that is called of God, or that is worship, so that he, as God, sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, that's the point there. That's when the abomination takes place. That's when this one who has betrayed the Jew because for peace, seven years peace, he now turns around and he himself claims to be God and set up his image in the temple claiming that he is God. When that happens, that is called the abomination of desolation. And that's where the Jew will recognize that they were betrayed. This is not the Messiah. And then they begin to flee. Uh, that's where this dovetail into Second Thessalonians that Paul talks about uh, in this passage. You might want to go on reading a little bit more, uh, Nate. Erskine um, from verse number five and following. He says, "Remember, remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things." Continue reading. And know ye now that what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mischief of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth or hindereth will, let, will hinder until he's taken. It's talking about the, the present work where the Holy Spirit is holding down this uh, this evil so that uh, when he is removed, when the church is raptured, it means that evil takes over. So it's talking about this restraining power that's currently in, uh, activated by God to restrain human sin, to restrain the uh, extent of iniquity. But when the church is raptured, the, the Holy Spirit goes with the church. And then that, uh, what happened to man of sin is revealed. Um, verse 8. Verse 8. Hello, good evening. Hello, good evening. You can hear me? Yes, we can hear you. You have a question? Yeah, my name is Elder Phil Cardington. I want to ask a question, yes? I am which would like to ask a question. When, um, maybe when they say the Catholic people in him is going to Mary, right? When they were saying, when they were saying that, both when you are who are criticizing the way we go about Mary. But when, when we go to heaven, what she going to say about all who were criticizing her down here? Uh, look, we don't criticize Mary for the fact that she bore uh, the Messiah. That's not the point. Okay, Mary, uh, the Bible says, because of uh, you know what she's done, basically, I think wherever we have um, um, celebrate uh, Christmas or have a Christmas message, uh, we always um, remind her, and, and we, we we preach on Mary in the sense that as a model, but Mary is not a co-redemptrix. Mary is not a co-mediator. Mary is not a God or semi-God. That's where we criticize the Catholic Church. They have made Mary into a queen. There's no queen in heaven. There's a king in heaven. Uh, Mary can't help anybody get saved. Mary can't help anybody who, who prays to her. We pray to God through Jesus Christ. That's the biblical teaching. So that's what we criticize. And Mary would endorse that as well if she was here to say, uh, follow him, don't follow me. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's exactly uh, her response to what we would be saying. She would be endorsing what we're saying because what the Catholic Church has done is to actually create an idol of Mary. 
and people bow to Mary, say prayers to Mary, and that is total idolatry. That's what we condemn. But we, we respect the fact that she was a human instrument used of God to bring the Messiah into the world. And she was willing to submit herself uh, to do that. And therefore, she must be credited uh, with that kind of dedication and commitment. But in terms of making her a God and exalting her, saying that she was not born in sin, for example, the Immaculate Conception, Mary was born in sin. Mary herself said, called God her Savior. Uh, a Savior is a person who saved you from sin. She recognized she was a, a sinner as well, uh, and so on. So it's not that we disrespect Mary. It's just that we do not believe that the, the, it is right to elevate a woman to the level of Christ or the level of Godhood or the level of a, a matriatrix, I mean a, a mediatrix, where she can uh, become a mediator between man and God. There's only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. What the Catholic Church has done is put Mary between Christ and God. So we go to Mary, who goes to Christ, who goes to God. That's an atrocity. That's an aberration. That's a biblical error. That is falsehood. That's not, that's not correct. That's what we correct. But it's not we're saying that Mary, we don't you know, not acknowledge the, the, uh, and honor her in terms of what she became a vessel to be used of God. Just like any prophet, we, we acknowledge prophets, we acknowledge the Apostle Paul, we acknowledge Peter. But we don't elevate Peter to be any pope either. We don't elevate people to be any kind of a demigod. He never claimed to be that way. So it's a matter of looking at the Bible. Letting the Bible be the standard by which you make those kind of judgments. And because if that is not so, we are left in total confusion. And that's where uh, we are not here to just target the Catholic Church or target any other church. What we are here to do is to look at the Bible. What's the Bible say about this matter? We tell you what the Bible says about it. Now, you don't have to accept it unless you find it in the Scriptures. But if you do find what we're saying is in the Scriptures and can be supported by Scripture, I would suggest to you that you are being carried down a wrong road and you're not following in wisdom to ignore God's Word in order to find yourself uh, in favor with any, any church, whether it be our church or any other church. That's all we're saying. But Mary's... Okay. Huh? You finished? Yes, sir. I want to continue more. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, the question that I really ask, right? Uh-huh. I ask... Whensoever are we Christians uh-huh. who are saying like what you are saying now about her? Yeah. When we you think she don't want to see our face? Of course. She'd be so glad that we, we corrected the error down here because a lot of people who think they get into heaven because they're dependent on Mary is gonna get a great disappointment. No man comes into the kingdom except through Jesus Christ. When you get to the, the door of heaven and they ask you why they let you in, you tell them you pray to Mary and see if you'll ever get in. If you don't, can't say I've put my that's faith and trust. That's the way how we, we pray to her. Pardon me? That's the way how we do it. How do you do it? You are, you are want to say we pray for her like Christ. We are praying to Christ the same thing like we are praying to Mary. We are not doing that. We just acknowledge her because no. she is a refined, highly favored in the, the sight of God and she became to bring Jesus Christ who is God in flesh for us. All, 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 I, all I could say to that, sir, is that if Mary was alive today and she was down here today, she will tell you, listen, don't follow me, follow Christ. He is the Savior. He's the Messiah. I was just a human instrument to, to be used in, in God's. But the focus is on Christ, not on me. Don't pray to me. Don't ask me. I can't help you. He is the one yeah, to help you. He's the Savior. Course, of course, she can do 
us, just like how you, a person, can pray in the church for somebody to get saved. Is not you always praying for somebody to get getting saved? Yeah, but I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm, I'm alive. The, the dead cannot help the living. The dead cannot help the living. Mary's function is, Mary has fulfilled her function. She was a vessel used of God. Okay. okay. Um, hear me. Um, I'm going to leave this question here because a man meet me the other night and tell me that we just stay on radio and so too long. But, um, no, no, you go ahead. You me. go ahead. I'm listening to you. I'm listening to you. Go no, ahead. no. A guy meet me on the night and tell me, you know, I just listen to the thing. So um, he, he said that we just stay on radio too long with the question. And then, so what I'm going to leave I with now, uh-huh. I don't believe you want to want to see all those faces who are criticizing us, Catholic, to big up our name so highly. Okay. All right. All, okay. All I would like to say uh, as you you leave, I just like to say this: it's not a matter of criticizing Catholic; it's criticizing the doctrine that is not in line with Scripture. That's what we criticize, and that's what we point out. That's what we do. Okay. Thank you very much, Elder Field, for your question, and continue to listen, listeners. If you would like to go live on the air, the number is two six eight four six two seven four two zero. That's 268-462-7420. Or if you'd like to send us a text or WhatsApp, that number is 268-782-1454. That's 268-782-1454. Pastor, you'd like to continue or you just want to wrap up that um, no, question? I, I hope I kind of clarify the whole matter. I hope I put it in the context to understand that what we're dealing with uh, in that passage, we're dealing with the tribulation period, we're dealing with what happens when our Lord returns. And remember, the church is raptured. When the church is raptured, God regrafts Israel into his program. Again, Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 explains this. And then when that is being done, he's talking about what when, when these things begin to happen and Israel begin to see what is happening. The Lord said, listen, you don't have time to come and salvage. Just, just run. Just run. Those that are taken away are those who are taken into judgment. The ones that are left are the ones that be sent into the kingdom. So that's where we need to. But because we have become so familiar with one in the field and one left, and that is used so often to talk about the rapture, that people uh, take it out of its context. And that's why I thought it was important to fit it into Matthew 24. So you understand he was dealing with the great tribulation period and our Lord's return after the tribulation period. The rapture occurs before the tribulation period. So we're dealing with two different things and things that differ are not the same. And you need to understand the context of a passage to appreciate its understanding and its uh, interpretation. Okay, listener, I hope you get... um the answer for that question because it was asked can I say that this is the rapture okay thank you very much Pastor Murphy would like us to move on to another question from a listener go ahead this is um, a whatsapp question from Trinidad and this one is talking about um, is soul ties biblical also is sexual soul ties biblical well, I, 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 um, my uh, first response to that, I mean, I've read the Bible several times and um, I've been studying the Scriptures for now over 30 years, etc. There is no reference anywhere in Scripture to anything about soul ties or sexual ties um, in, in Scripture. 
this kind of uh, lingo, this kind of language, this kind of expression really is a modern invention. And it's really the byproduct of modern psychology and Hollywood romanticism. And uh, that's where those kind of terminologies come from. Um, biblical realism lets us know that we, we, we are fallen creatures. Uh, we are selfish and depraved. And uh, that's why it's difficult to have human compatibility uh, at the level of either um, soul compatibility or even sexual compatibility. Uh, and that's where recognizing man's fallen nature uh, what is most important to God is not sexual compatibility or soul, but spiritual compatibility. That's where you can get sexual compatibility. And so you've got to become people who are spiritually in line with each other. The most important factor in uh, in a marriage or in a relationship uh, for a believer is the compatibility of the two spiritually. If you can get, make sure that she loves the Lord and you love the Lord, you're dedicated to Him and He's dedicated, uh, she's dedicated to the Lord, uh, both of you want to serve the Lord, that is what you call spiritual. Out of that can come other forms of compatibility, but you can't have the others without having this spiritual unity between the two persons, and that's the crucial thing in the Scriptures. Uh, so I would suggest to you that rather than focusing on soul compatibility and sexual compatibility, focus on spiritual compatibility. Make sure the person that you're dating or the person you want to marry, the two of you are on the same spiritual wavelength. Both of you are saved, both of you are converted, both of you are serving the Lord, both of you are dedicated to Him, and both of you want to do His will. If you can uh, come to that level of spiritual compatibility, I think you can work through all the other matters in life. Uh, and uh, that would enable you to have, uh, when you get married, sexual compatibility, and when you get married, to have what you might call this soul compatibility, and you can become uh, more of a, a unit. Uh, that is my, my, my um, thought on this matter, and I think it's the... the the um, brainwashing that we have gotten through the media, whether it be television or reading books or whatever, that these ideas uh, that we got to be compatible sexual and compatible soul, uh, in soul, uh, and this is where success comes from, it's a myth. It's a myth. A female body and a male's body is compatible. God made them compatible. Uh, where there are problems between uh, sexual problems between two people, it has nothing to do with the bodies are not compatible, or the soul is not compatible. It has that the spirit, the two people, are, uh, the spirits are not compatible with each other. When I say that, they're not on the same spiritual wavelength. Because when a person is is saved and a person is following God's will, you read God's word to find out what's expected of me. So when a wife marries a a, a Christian who is a um, a real dedicated Christian who's following the Lord. There's no question when she comes to First Corinthians chapter seven that the Bible makes it quite clear that she has responsibilities to her husband and he has responsibilities to his wife. And Paul makes it very clear that the wife's body doesn't belong to her, the husband's body doesn't belong to him. And both of them must not cheat each other or deprive each other of sexual intimacy. People who understand that biblical truth and who are spiritual uh, Christians will have no problem in meeting the needs of each other because that's a biblical requirement. So the key thing here is to get the person on the same spiritual wavelength where they're dedicated to following God and obeying God's word and living according to God's statutes and God's ordinances. When that happens, you're going to get the kind of compatibility that you need.
And surely the Bible said, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Correct. So, <laughs> you know, to be honest, Pastor Murphy, is the first time I'm hearing about soul ties and uh, sexual uh, soul uh, ties uh, biblically. Well, it's not the first time I've heard that. As a matter of fact, I've been doing witnessing where people live. Uh, when I meet people who are not married and they're living together, and sometimes you, <clears throat> you recognize that the problem where they're not converted, you ask them, well, you know, you guys been living together for a while. Why don't you just do the right thing and do the biblical thing again? And I've had people tell me, well, I am in this to find out if we're sexually compatible. And I always smile. <laughs> of course you're compatible. You're a male and a female. That's how God made you. It's just a cop-out, to be very honest with you. Uh, in, in the, but people are looking for excuses, and they use that kind of language. And then they say, you know, how do I know that her spirit and my soul, or whatever it is, uh, could jive and um, coalesce together and, um, you know, function together and mesh and stuff like that. Again, the, the key thing here is to become born again, uh, be devoted to the Lord, following His Word, obedient to His Word. As you live obediently to God's Word, you'll find that this compatibility nonsense that people are using today uh, uh, just falls into place. doesn't mean that we're not going to have problems in our Christian marriage, etc., etc., but again, we go back to Scripture, find out what those principles are, and we fall in line with those biblical principles. And as we follow God's Word and obey God's Word, we find that He brings blessing, He brings healing, and He brings restoration. Pastor, it seems like we have a caller. Hello, good evening. Good evening, good evening. Hi, good evening, sir. Mr. Williams, how are you doing? Good, sir. How's your wife doing? Well, she's not feeling too hot, but she's making out. Oh, boy. Hmm. I hope you're giving a lot of TLC. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How can I help you now, sir? Yeah, I have two questions. Sure. Uh, The first one, uh, which part in the Bible that ever mentioned about Ellen G. White ever be a prophet? Oh, uh, that doesn't exist. That's a, that's a myth of the Seventh Day Adventist Church. They they, uh, uh, they said that she had the spirit of prophecy. There's a reference in the book of I can't give it right off my head, but they take that reference and apply it to Ellen G. White. Ellen G. White was not a prophet. I can prove that very easily. I can show that she made pro- uh, prophecies and said certain things would happen that didn't happen. That puts outside the realm of a true prophet. I can also show you that she thought, thought some very weird teachings that are, are not only unscientific, but completely bogus. And the other thing I can show you very clearly that she claimed that she had all of these writings directly from God and by angels. I can, I can recommend a book right now to anybody who's a Seventh-day Adventist. It's called The White Lie. And it's written by an ex-Seventh-day Adventist pastor. What he does, he takes all her writings and got them quoted on one side and got on the other side where she got all of them from that she said that she got from God. So she plagiarized and never gave credit to people where she got the information from. And uh, that puts her outside the realm of being a prophet. Because, because I, I heard and I heard a pastor you talking and when he's talking that and enjoy one of the greatest prophet ever passed. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's because he doesn't know. You know, if people don't know, people don't investigate these things. And I would, I would challenge any Seventh-day Adventist out there uh, who are going to question what I'm saying. Um, I have the book, and I'm prepared to lend you the book. And if you don't have, want the book, go online and, and, and get the white lie. And you will see it for yourself that there you are of all of her, all her writings, where she got all this, and then you got on the left-hand side all of the plagiarism that she did. And remember, this is a woman that claimed that she got direct revelation from God. That is what you call uh, intellectual dishonesty. 
And um, that certainly puts her, uh, questions her moral character, and therefore she cannot be treated as a, a prophet. <laughs> And the second one, uh, when when Samuel come and, and call uh, Eli the high priest, mm-hmm. and tell him about if he call him and tell him no. Uh, and then he tell him about his two sons. Did Eli know his two sons was not serving God? No. Well, Eli's two sons were living with the women in the temple. And, and uh, the Bible says that, you know, all he did was to just warn them. And God judged him for that. He should not have warned him. He should have removed him from, from being the priesthood. In other words, he should have defrocked him. But he tolerated the sons living in moral lives in the temple. And God judged him for that. Uh, and of course, uh, being a spiritual leader, he's responsible for making sure that his son doesn't get away with things. Uh, the worst thing a pastor can do is to his because he's the pastor uh, to hide things that his son does that nobody knows, and eventually it comes out. You've got to deal with your sons as you deal with any other person in the church. Look, uh, pastor's sons are not perfect. Pastor's children are not perfect, but he must not be the one that is willing to punish other people and call for uh, them to come before the church. But when his sons or daughters do something. He just puts it under the rug. He loses his credibility. And that's exactly what happened with Samuel. Samuel knew that uh, a person like his son was disqualified from being a, a part of the priesthood. But he, in, he continued to allow them to, uh, to be f- uh, functioning as a priest when they disqualified themselves by living in moral lives with the women in the temple. And, and God uh, just said, you know, I'm going to take away the priesthood from you. And, uh, and, and the Lord started a new priesthood with another person. But that is part of the judgment, and it's a warning to us uh, as leaders, spiritual leaders, that we must not be blamed to our own children's um, uh, problems, and we must be willing to treat our children like we treat other people who fall into sin. Uh, again, there's no perfection down here, but we must not let our children get away with things that we would not other people's children get away with. When we do that, we lose our credibility and we lose our influence. Because, because Paul tell you, if a victim is supposed to be on the contrary, if outgoes, the children under good direction. Yeah. So if, if he was a high priest, I mean, he's supposed to control the children, not supposed to allow them to do what they want. And then right, but that's what he did. He, he just closed a blind eye to what was going on. And the people, you know, you can imagine that the people know that his son's living with the women in the temple. Daddy knows that, but Daddy does nothing about it. He allows it to continue. And, and, and that, of course, what that does, that brings disrepute uh, to, to God's, uh, God's work. And it, it causes God's name to become besmirched and dishonored and even blasphemed against. And our Lord will not tolerate that kind of uh, behavior. He has to judge. And, of course, he judges his leaders far more severe than he does the ordinary person because to whom much responsibility is given, um, much accountability would also be, be required. But, but when, when he had blind and, and Samuel come tell him that he took son dead in the, in the battle, he was, he was not a priest at that time. He was not what? He was not a priest at that time. Remember, he was a 98 years when he had blind and Samuel come tell him that. The two sons have died in the battle. Uh-huh. At that time, he was he was not a priest again. 
Yeah, he, he he lost his priesthood after he fell over in the chair and broke his neck. And broke his neck yeah, 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 when he heard the news, but he still continued the priesthood. That's when the priesthood was re- removed. But uh, you know, a prophet was sent to him, telling him that he would uh, his his uh, family would lose the priesthood and the priesthood would be given to somebody else. Uh, mm-hmm. But that was part of his judgment. Uh, part of his judgment was not only losing his sons' to, uh, lives, but also that he, he himself, on hearing the news, as you know, fell back and broke his neck. This is God judging Samuel, uh, judging Eli for not um, not dealing with his, his children and ignoring his children and closing a blind eye to what they were doing. Uh, God doesn't tolerate that, brother. And pastors need to realize that and people in responsibility need to realize that. Uh, and I'd like to say this, no uh, body is perfect. No pastor's children are perfect. Nobody's perfect. But the thing is, they have to be dealt with. The same way you deal with other people in the church, you have to be prepared to deal with your kids. You can't show partiality in these matters. When you do that, you lose your credibility and you lose your influence. And you might as well go to another church and find another place because people no longer listen to you if you just let your child do what you want to do and never uh, deal with the matter. Okay, sir. Thank you for calling. Appreciate that. Say hi to the wife for me, please. Thank you, sir. Why are Okay. <laughs> God bless you. Okay. Okay, thank you very much, Carla. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from Antigua on 1160 kHz AM, 92.3 MHz FM. And you could also listen to us online at www.radiolighthouse.org. The time in your studios is now 8.31, and you're listening to That's Truth. And if you'd like to pose a question to Pastor Murphy, the number to do so to go live on air is 268-462-7420. Or if you'd like to send us a WhatsApp or a text message, you could do that at 268-782-1454. Pastor Murphy? There was another question thing you mentioned. Okay, you'd like to um, go on to another question. This is a text message from St. Kitts. He has about four questions. Okay, let me see which one I can answer tonight. Okay, the first one. If God wired male and female differently in their brain, and the brain controlled the body, why a man want to be a woman and a woman want to be a man? Well, this is part of moral confusion uh, that I, I, I myself am bamboozled by the stupidity of a lot of uh, people who ought to know better, including the medical profession, because we know that the chromosomes in a male is different than the chromosomes in a female. And uh, it's very obvious what a male looks like and the organs we have and the body structure and the hormones, etc. tells you what a male is. It's only this crazy generation that has allowed psychology and um, atheism and evolution uh, to create all this massive confusion. Uh, but we know that uh, if you go to Corinthians, uh, sorry, uh, Romans chapter 1, for example, take homosexuality. The Bible says it's unnatural. It's against the body. It's not how God designed it. To ha- uh, it designed it. And anybody would know that uh, the rectum was not made for a penis. Anybody knows that. It's a sewage canal. Why would anybody find delight and pleasure in a sewage canal? I don't know. 
But that clearly is an atrocity. It's an abomination. It's it, 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 it's 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 just uh, as a matter of fact, the Bible says that when that begins to happen, it means that God has taken His hand off a person's life and just gave them over to to the reckless uh, immorality. So when you see homosexuality begin to take over a country, you know one thing: God has removed His hand and His moral restraint is completely removed. He's just abandoned these people to the evil. So I'm saying that uh, no. A person might be born with an inclination, like all people are born with an inclination that is evil. Uh, but that doesn't mean you follow that inclination. Uh, it is possible that a person could form where uh, and there's no explanation. Um, it, it's like a, 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 take, take, the, the, take the matter of sex, for example. Sex is normal. A person, is, a male is born at some point in time where he desires that in a woman. Uh, that's normal. But sometimes it becomes perverted when it is misused. Sex must be used within the context of marriage. Anytime you go outside of marriage, you're allowing that desire to lead you contrary to God's will. So let's suppose it was possible that a person was born inclined uh, to f- be fond of um, a same-sex birth. Let's suppose that was possible. Okay, and let's suppose that the conditions, the and I think it's more an environmental problem, by the way, than it is a hereditary problems. You weren't born that way. Um, I remember when I was a boy. This might seem crazy, but I remember sometimes people like to dress up like a girl. I can still remember those that those those times. It was fun. Uh, but uh, again, and, and girls would dress up like guys because it was fun. But that's childish stuff. But if your parents encourage you. Uh, in that direction I've seen this happen By the way In real life In the States Where I thought the It was so silly to For the mother To be saying Those kind of things To the child Who was becoming A certain age He eventually Became a homosexual By the way But I saw What was happening uh, He would think It was nice To dress up Like this person He would style her, And she's thinking This is the most uh, Humorous and fanciful thing And then It led the boy Along that That, that incline Etc cetera, Etc cetera. But listen uh, there is no uh, biological explanation for this kind of craziness that's going on today. And quite frankly, had not the psychological society given in to the, the aggressive militancy of the homosexual community, uh, a lot of this could have been stopped a long, long time. But once you open the door and what you used to call a mental illness which was what they defined homosexual until 1973. It was a mental illness. It was a sickness. And then when the homosexual committee started to threaten to, to do violence, it was not a, 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 a scientific cause to change the definition where it now was seen as sexual preference. It's all language, right? But it was under threat that they changed the definition of, of these things. And when you let the homosexual know as a, or normalize that, it was only a matter of time before you have the transsexual. Now you've got so many, I don't even know you got right now. And it's all crazy. People need to call it for what it is, stupidity. And uh, if we had gone back, go back to biblical truth, none of this would be allowed. But the problem is we've gotten away from God, gotten away from Scripture, and we're now following uh, psychology, which is human psychology, which makes man the measure of all things. And we're now going down an incline and escalating towards destruction and nobody seems to be able to stop it because we don't have the wisdom any longer to say this is, this is stupid. Look, look at what um, Mr. Biden just did. 
he has now legalized transgender people to compete with women. What woman could compete with a man who transformed himself into a woman? It's crazy. And if I was a woman and I was a woman athlete, I would protest that. I would refuse to run in the race. If the women athletes were to do that, guess what? The politicians would change their mind. But uh, people need to take a stand on these matters and just don't count out that all this nonsense is going on within our world. Uh, you got to stand for biblical truth. Look, if something is going contrary to God's word, I don't have any problems about it. It's wrong. It's evil. It's wicked. It's ungodly. See, But that's because of my conviction about God's word. So I, I'm saying to you, let's get our theology straight. Let's get our understanding of the Bible straight. And a lot of these issues that people are wrestling with, I don't have problems with these kind of things. I can call them out immediately because I know one thing. Either that man is right or God is right. And I've got to make a choice to make between that. And let me say, let God be true and every man a liar. So I am saying to you that this kind of thing that uh, is going on, it, it is actually, people are getting away with it. And a lot of these people, by the way, who are now running um, transgender, running these races and stuff like that, they couldn't be nothing <laughs> when they were men. And, and you don't remember that sports is massive money in the States. It's a, it, it's, 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 it's a matter of fact, when I hear the amount of money some of these people make, I, I, I'm staggered that anybody could just run a race or run down a basketball field or, or play some other game. And the millions of dollars they make, and here you are slaving away, working this, you, 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 off, and, and <laughs> what happened? The minuscule what you get, it's not, it's not fair, it's not comparison whatsoever. But this has led people to opt this kind of way, and because the psychology uh, and the psychiatrists and now the, the doctors, rather than holding to their understanding of, of true science, they are now as well a, a bowing to this, this kind of pressure and yielding to this kind of pressure, and therefore it's this massive confusion we've got going on. And when it gets into the realm of the majority now, the minority who stand up against these things is now labeled as being intolerant, biased, prejudiced, and uh, I hate monger. I am neither of those, but I'm against all of it. Thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. There's another question here, probably this one, from the same listener from St. Kitt. Was Moses a military leader? Yeah, Moses was a military leader in the sense that he led the people out of Egypt. And, um, and in, in that sense, he was kind of a general um, and, you know, so he's leading the the force, and then when he's going into the promised land as well, uh, he's like the, the one of the 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 military leaders leading. Of course, Joshua and Caleb were his right hand men in this his, his regards. So in that sense, uh, he could be perceived as a, a great, uh, not only just a spiritual leader, a great administrator. Moses was also a prophet. He also fulfilled the role of a priest. He wore many, many hats. And one of those things was that he, he was uh, able to lead the army of Israel uh, out of Egypt into Palestine. Pastor Murphy, we have a caller from Nevis. Hello, yes, good evening. Good evening. Good evening, Nathan. How are you doing? I'm not doing too badly. I hear you listening to the program. Yeah, I, I have pleasure I, hearing I you. I have a question. Sure. On, uh, First Corinthians 15, uh -huh. verses 51 and 52. Okay, let's see if I can answer that. If I can answer that without um, having to... Could you read that first, please? Um, First, first, first Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Got it? Yes, um, 
said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Yeah, this is what we call, uh, Nathan, this is what we refer to as the rapture. This is where the church is going to be removed suddenly. The twinkling of an eye is something even quicker than a blink, by the way. It's like a little twitch in the eye. But the whole idea is that this is going to be so sudden uh, and uh, take place so rapidly and so quickly uh, that the world is just going to be stunned that the believers are gone. Uh, that is why I was trying to draw, if you listen to the program, Matthew chapter 27, 24, and, and Luke chapter 17 has to do with the revelation when people will see when Christ returns in all of his glory. The rapture is not that way. Uh, the rapture is where our Lord comes back and removes the church uh, suddenly and then regrafts Israel into his program. But that's what it's talking about. We shall be changed in the twink of an eye. Um, what was your answer? What was your any specific question about that? Yes, um, it says, the scripture says that it would be in the twinkling of an eye at the last jump. Uh-huh. Now, when would be the last jump? Well, I'll tell you what some people have done. They've gone into the book of Revelation, and there's seven trumpets that are blown, and they figure that they will take place. Uh, they said that that is the last trump because it's mentioned in the book of Revelation. The problem with that is this. There are... Um, uh, contorting two things that don't that don't don't mesh. The book of Revelation has nothing to do with the rapture of the church. It has to do with the revelation and the judgment of the tribulation period. Uh, so the two cannot refer to the same thing. Um, the the last trump here is when God blows the, tr- the final trump to call uh, God's people up. Uh, that is how you would interpret that. But it cannot be the same in the book of Revelation it's simply because you're dealing with two different things. One, you're dealing with God, dealing with Israel in the tribulation period. One, you're dealing here with the church. And remember that the church is not mentioned after chapter 4 in the book of Revelation. You don't find it in, in after chapter 4. You find it in the first uh, few chapters, especially chapter 2 and 3, when he talks to the seven churches. And then in chapter 4, John is called up. That's a type of the rapture. And then John is given this vision of what is coming after the church is raptured. So the two of them um, are not the same. They're dealing with two different things altogether. And if you read the book of um, Revelation, there's nothing there about changing anybody's body in a twink of an eye. It's about God bringing his wrath on planet Earth and the different judgments he will bring. So you're dealing with two different things altogether. Um... In Revelation 20, uh-huh. there's a reference made there by John uh-huh. that uh, the dead would be raised and that would be the first resurrection. Uh-huh. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with the rapture. No, nothing to do with the rapture. Absolutely nothing to do with the rapture. As a matter of fact, those are the people that are raised after the tribulation period that share in the first resurrection. The ra- Let me put it this way, uh, uh, Nathan. If you go through the Old Testament, you will not find any reference to the rapture. You will find reference to the resurrection because Daniel talked about the resurrection. The psalmist talked about the resurrection, but nobody ever talked about the rapture. Uh, the rapture is not mentioned in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, the church is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Okay? The church has to do, the, the Old Testament has to do with Israel. 
And then Paul explains all of this in Revelation, in, in, in um, Romans 9, 10, and 11. He explains that God had chosen Israel, and he talked about all the blessings that God gave to Israel, the, the prophets, the, the scriptures, the covenants, the, the tabernacle, um, all of these things that God gave to him. But when the Messiah came, rather than receive the Messiah, they rejected the Messiah. And God uh, set aside Israel and grafted the church into his plan. But that plan was not foreseen in the Old Testament. Then after the Lord fulfills his purpose for the church and the church is raptured, Paul says he will now graft Israel back into his plan. That's where the revelation comes in and the, the tribulation comes in. All of this is, uh, unless you... Um, Follow the Old Testament and get into the New Testament. We've uh, got to understand there's certain things that are revealed that were mysteries that Paul talked about. And the, the rapture is one of those mysteries that was hidden from the very foundation of the earth, but now revealed by the apostles. So nobody in the Old Testament understood this whole matter of the rapture. But I do say this. There are pictures of the rapture uh, of what would happen. For example, you, I mentioned before um, Enoch. Before the flood came and the judgment came, Enoch was taken out. That's a perfect example of what will happen to the, the believer. They'll be taken out before the judgment of God. And it's interesting that the, the, uh, the Noah's Ark is mentioned uh, in, in, in Matthew, Matthew chapter 24. Before that took place, Enoch was taken out and, and translated. That's where the church will be translated. So he's a type. Of course, um, Elijah also was taken to heaven directly. Is also another type of this matter. But there was no explanation about the rapture until this mystery was revealed to Paul. And Paul said, let me reveal what this mystery is all about. He, he brought this revelation. Let me mention one other thing, Nathan. If you read Corinthians chapter 7, you'll find that Paul says he's given the, the church advice that our Lord did not give about marriage. And Paul uh -huh. deal with a question our Lord never dealt with. He never dealt with abandonment. He gave the whole matter about marriage, but never about abandonment. He dealt with adultery. But never he discussed the whole matter of abandonment. What, what happens when a, a partner abandons a person? What do you do? Paul is saying, what I'm telling you is not something the Lord has dealt with. Here's some, another area that he, and so God gave him revelation how to deal with it. It doesn't mean he's contradicting Jesus. It's just that the Lord has given him revelation to deal with a specific matter the Lord never dealt with. Because that never came up in the, any discussion when our Lord was on earth. So that is why, I, I, you know, you've got to understand that the apostles were given mysteries to reveal to the church that was hidden from the ages of the ages. But they're now revealed to us, to the apostles, who now make these things uh, understood for us. Does that help? Yes. Um, another thing. Yes, sir. Look at uh, John chapter 6. Verses 23 and 26. Okay, John 16, what? 23? 23 and 26. 23, John 16. It says here, um, And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, uh, Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. What's the other one? 24. 26. 26. In that day you shall ask in my name, and I shall, and I uh, and I say un, not unto you uh, that I will pray the Father for you. What, what's the what's the what's the question there? For the Father loveth you. Uh huh. Uh, I don't have the Bible before me, uh -huh. but um, this is 
with the uh, Mary allergy. Oh, yeah, yeah. I agree with you. I'm glad you pointed that out, you know. It says, uh, you shall ask in my name, and whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. Yeah. And 26 says, I don't say to you that I will pray the Father because the Father loves you. Uh-huh. And whatever you ask in my name, he will give it to you. Yeah. Very good point, because the argument the Catholic use is that Mary can, Mary has a more sympathetic ear with Jesus, so that you go to Mary, Mary goes to Jesus, <laughs> Jesus goes to the, to the Father. But it's very, very clear what you point out here, that there's no need for another mediator between, uh, because you go directly to the Father, the Father loves you, wants you answered in Jesus' name. So Mary is completely eliminated. Yes, you ask the Father in Jesus' name. Correct, sir. So I say, I myself don't, you don't come to me and ask me, and then I go to the Father. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you could go to the Father directly right. in my name. Correct. And he will do it. Yeah. Well said, beautifully said. So he, so he didn't say you can go to Mary. Right. And then Mary go to Jesus, and Jesus in turn goes to the Father, yeah. but you shall ask the Father in my name, Correct. and I will do it. Correct. And there's an interesting verse in Romans mm. chapter 1 where Paul says we have access, direct access to the Father, because Christ has paved the way for us to have direct access to him in Jesus' name. Very valid point. I really appreciate that. Very strong point. Thank you so very much. Appreciate that, brother. Okay. Have a good night. You too. God bless you. Okay, Pastor Murphy, thank you, caller, for that question. Another um, question here from the listener in St. Kitts. What is the purpose of missions and a missionary? Well, a purpose of missions, I mean, any person that reads the book of Acts uh, would have a very clear idea what missions are all about. The whole purpose of the church, uh, the mandate of the church, the, the, the commission of the church, uh, it's given in Matthew chapter 28, where the church is told to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, for a person to go into all the world and preach the gospel, several things. Number one, um, you can't do it on your own. Uh, you can't go into a country, for example, and, and work in a country. You need to be able to be supported so that you can go to that country and become a minister of the word. And that's where missions comes in. Um, mission organizations and missions within church uh, societies, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are uh, they use the resources of the local folk who give towards missions. That money is actually either sent to a missions organization or they support missionaries directly. People who are called to go into different fields, etc. So a missionary is one called of God uh, to reach others for Christ and who are. Uh, in most cases are dedicating themselves to go, in most cases, to a foreign country. But it doesn't have to be a foreign country. It could be a local country itself. It could be, uh, for example, suppose we want to start a, uh, a ministry in one of the country areas in Antigua where there's not too much of a gospel witness. Uh, and a young man in our church who uh, said he's called to God, and the church confirms that by 
his gifts and his um, his work in the church, and we wanted felt that this is work we can support. We could support him to, to devote himself to go to that area and target that area with witnessing, preaching, teaching, whatever it is, to start an outreach ministry. Or you can have a person who wants to go and reach the Spanish or uh, meet, reach the the, um, the French, like in Guadeloupe or Martinique or some other country where they haven't heard the gospel, uh, where the country is not evangelized. And uh, missions boards are there to uh, take those type of people, try to help them raise support where there's accountability because when money is sent to a missionary, you want to make sure that that fund is used properly and it goes to the, the mission missionary. And you also want that the mission board can check up on what that person is doing to make sure that they're doing what they're called to do. So a, a mission missionary, therefore, is someone called of God to do the work of reaching the loss for Christ. And a mission board is a society that's formed to facilitate that by holding people accountable and being able to provide some kind of oversight of individuals who are on the mission field uh, to make sure that they get their uh, funding regularly, uh, to make sure that if there are any problems dealing with the government, for example, how to get into the country, if you need a, a visa, if you need some confirmation that these people are authentic, all of these things go into place. Uh, so that is what... Um, um, just very quickly and very rapidly, I would say about uh, missions and mission missionaries. Okay, thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. Could I, could I say something else? Um, um, quickly, uh, look. Let's not forget that the whole purpose of the church is about missions. If you are going to a church, any church, I don't care what church it is, your church should have some kind of a missions program. Uh, you cannot be ignoring the mandate that our Lord gave to you and be calling yourself a New Testament church. There are churches that use all of their resources to focus upon themselves and their own ministries. But you have to look beyond the local church and beyond your local ministry to other ministries. So I'm just trying to put in a plug here that every single church should have some kind of a missionary program uh, and try to reach uh, out and help support missionaries. Look, we have a small church, uh, but I think we spend almost $3,000 every month sending it out to missionaries all over the world, as far as Moldova, you know, all over Philippines, South America. Uh, we do that because that's the mandate we were given. Now, we all can't go, but we can support those who are going with our prayers and with our financial support. That's exactly what we do. I know big churches that have huge budgets, but they don't have one missionary, not one single missionary, and they don't have any kind of missionary outreach program. That is pathetic for any church that is in, in, uh, is that way. Thank you very much. So missions and missionaries are to fulfill the mandate of God, going into all the world and preach the gospel. Correct. There's another question here from St. Kitts. I think this one, we'll leave this one for next week. This is one uh, from the days of John the Baptist. The kingdom suffered violence and were taken by force. Did the kingdom, did the king of the kingdom suffered violence too? Yeah. I, let me deal with that ne next week because the, the language that is used there, I'm familiar with the passage, the language is, is, is uh, needs some clarification in terms of 
um, trying to get hold of what those those terms mean. And I would like to be able to deal with that more extensively. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. I wrote it down here. I'll deal with that next week. Okay, there's a WhatsApp question from a listener here in Antigua. Good evening, gentlemen. Thanks again for this great program. My question tonight is, is the Trinity a false teaching? If not, can you point me to Scripture that explains? Uh, we did a program, and I, I asked um, uh, Erskine to see if he can follow up the, 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 where it was, but we did a program on the Trinity already, and uh, the evidence is there. Uh, and I, to rehash that, I mean, I can, I can rehash several of the points initially, but uh, let me just say this. If there's no Trinity, there's no such thing as eternal love. Think about that for just a moment. Anytime there is any kind of love, you need at least two persons. And you cannot have eternal love without having at least two persons. So we know that there has to be at least two persons within the Godhead. But when you go into the, the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, if we were to do a, a systematic study, you'll find that, uh, take Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That word God there is the word Elohim. In actual fact, it's plural, but yet it has a singular verb. So it's like the word family. Uh, the, we, we say the family is going on vacation, but within that family you've got several people, but it's seen as a unit. It's that kind of a language that is used in the Bible. And the word, uh, uh, take the word, for example, Adam and his wife became one. Uh, that's a, a compound one. That's the same word that says God is one. It's not a, 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 um, a unit. It's a unity that is used in the Hebrew language. And then if you go through the uh, Old Testament, you learn that there's God the Father. You learn there's God the Spirit. And then you learn that God is going to send His Son in the Old Testament. When you work through yourself systematically, you find that we're given tidbits here and there in the Old Testament that leads us into the New Testament now where we discover that uh, take our Lord's baptism. The Father speaks from heaven, Jesus on earth, and the Holy Spirit comes from heaven in the form of So we learn that there are three. But what does this three mean? See? So we begin to work ourselves through this, this revelation. And But let me just say this. The Trinity is not something that you can comprehend or I can comprehend because we can't comprehend God. God is infinite. And I've said this on the program, I'll say it again. It's because of the unique doctrine of the Trinity that leads me to believe that the, the, the greatest truth and the greatest religion in the world is, is, is Christianity. God is a mystery. We remain a mystery. We cannot put him in a capsule. We can't analyze him. We cannot define him. He's infinite. We'll deal with this at another program. Okay, thank you very much, Pastor Murphy. We have now come to the end of that street for tonight. I want to thank you very much for being a part of the program for those who have sent in their questions and those who called to go on the air live certainly we do appreciate you doing so and there are some few more questions we'll try our best to answer them next week so goodbye and may God's richly bless you for the rest of the evening thank you for joining us for today's program we pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth.
Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.